Welcome everyone to Blackhawk Church. My name is Matt Metzger. I'm the pastor of Blackhawk Downtown and uh, I'm a part of the teaching team and uh, we're so glad that all of you are here. Welcome to everybody in the room. Welcome to everybody at all sites, all venues, joining us online right now. Man, we're, we're glad that you're taking some time to, to be with us right now. So I have a question for all of us that I'd love everybody to participate in. Okay, everyone here in the room, everyone watching online, this is an all skate deal right now with raising of hands. So after meet and greet that we just did, sometimes it just feels good to be able to get a hit of this kind of stuff. So this is a Purell and uh, I, I, I appreciate having this on stage right now. How many of you use this stuff at least once a week, Regu like semi-regular basis to once a week? Yeah, I mean, hopefully all sites you're doing this right now. There's a massive amount of people in here. You find this stuff everywhere, like schools, workplaces, grocery stores, um, your church, uh, um, the gym that I go to, they have it by the door as you go out and you can get a pump of it wherever it is that you go. And the beauty of it is, just listen, listen real quick, listen. Come on, right there. And you know that there is cleanliness on its way to your hands right now. Things are going to be different. So that for now, afterwards, you know that if you come to like shake my hands, give me a high five, I'll put it on the front. So if we fist bump, we're all good. And, uh, and you know that I'm clear. We, we use this stuff because um, it is supposed to make our hands germ-free. It's supposed to get rid of bacteria or any type of infection stuff so that uh, when we end up shaking hands with somebody or touching something, hopefully, you know, we've dealt with stuff. This is to make our hands pure. That's the idea of it. Well, we are going towards a passage of scripture today where we're actually going to get a chance to hear a conversation take place between Jesus and some other people about the purity of their hands. So if you brought your Bibles or if you have your smartphones, whatever it is, as a tablet, go ahead and turn with me right now to Mark chapter 7. That's where we're going to um, launch off today. For if you haven't been around here at Blackhawk, we are in the middle of the series right now that we're going through called Unexpected Kingdom, where we are slowly and methodically going through the book of Mark all together. And uh, last week, Pastor Charles took us through a good chunk of chapter six as we looked at um, the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water. And now this section, chapter seven, is right where he left off and we're going to pick up at that place. So let's go ahead, chapter seven, starting with verse one. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it on the screens. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating, with, eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Okay, now let's be clear on what's going on in this passage. The, the, the Pharisees, the elders, they were, they were not thinking about bacteria and germs when they were looking at this. 
If you're hoping that somehow that we're going to go towards the idea of Jesus giving you a get out of jail free card from not having to wash your hands, let's say you're one of those people in the bathroom that I might have seen earlier who like you went and then just walked out. Yeah, you don't get that. This is not gonna help you in that way and that's gross, by the way. So <laughs> just saying. So this is, this is a passage that has to do with what the elders and the Pharisees were talking about was ceremonial uncleanness. The, the Jewish people lived back then by Mosaic law. And, and Mosaic law would say that if, if a Jew came in contact with um, something that was dead, human or animal, they were considered ceremonially unclean. If, they, uh, if a person had like a, a skin disease, a skin rash, or something like that that was like discharging, um, they were considered unclean. If you came in contact with mildew, you were considered unclean. Or if you, if you ate something that was on the list of foods that were considered unclean, obviously you were unclean. And, and most of the practice that, that, that Jewish people did as they would go to buy and sell goods would happen at the marketplace. That would happen where Gentile people were as well. And so they were around people who weren't living by these laws. And so it wasn't just if you did these things, but if you came in contact with a person who did these things, it rubbed off onto you and therefore you were ceremonially unclean because of what they did, because of what they had, because of what they had taken in. And because of this, the, the elders, the religious leaders, kind of set a, a, a fence around this idea of ceremonial uncleanness. So that for every person, due to the tradition that they set up before they ate, if they had been at the marketplace or somewhere they could potentially be unclean, they would go ahead, they would wash their hands in order to make sure that they were completely covered. Because if they were unclean, it meant you couldn't enter the temple. It meant that you couldn't go to worship God with the community. And really the idea of the, of the elders doing this, this came from a good place. Like they wanted to move people towards pious living, that we, we serve a holy, righteous, pure God. And that it's good for us to remember that in the, in the way that we live, that we would be people who strive to be righteous, holy, and pure ourselves before a God that is that way. But, but the Pharisees, well, they, they took it too far. And Jesus is going to call them on the carpet on that right now. Let's continue on with verse six. He replied, that is Jesus. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Okay, Jesus comes at them pretty strong. They're going to challenge Jesus in his ritual and ceremonial way of life. Jesus is going to turn around and challenge them in their inner lives. And he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites is a word that was used, um, really the idea of it is that it, a person is a play actor. If you're watching a person on stage in a show, you know the character that they are playing is not who that person is in reality. They are play acting. What you see externally is not who the person actually is. Well, Jesus is saying, this is who the Pharisees are. 
their external, the way they're living their lives is not matching the internal of what's truly going on in their relationship with God and their understanding of God. And he goes on to give an example of the way that this looks. Let's go back to the passage, verse nine. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Okay, let's, let's talk about Corban for just a minute. Corban is a practice that in our day and age, we have no idea what it was. To Jewish people back then, they would have understood it. Corban was this tradition that had been handed down uh, through the temple where, where a Jewish person could go ahead, they could take their finances, their assets, their property, and they could devote it all to God. That was called Corban. And they could go ahead and do this, but, but Corbin was followed rather, rather loosely. So, so as somebody would, would declare all of their stuff Corbin, it didn't mean that it all went to the temple immediately. It meant that it would happen when they, when they died, and it might happen. Like, it didn't always happen. And, and at the same time, for a person who declared everything Corbin, they could still use it for themselves. They just didn't have to use it for anyone else. And so when it came to their family, the way that God had, had declared, you know, in law that we're to honor our parents, if, if family or anyone came to that person needing help financially, needing help with assets, well, the person could say, oh, I wish I could help you, but all of my, all of my wealth, all of my assets, yeah, it's all Corbin. Sorry, can't help you. You see, people were using this as a loophole to really help their families. And Jesus is calling them on the carpet for this. Focusing on all of these outside practices, the washing of hands, or declaring things Corbin. Jesus is basically saying to them, big picture, that you are focused on the small and inconsequential rather than seeing the big picture of who I really am. You see, I mean, think about it with the Pharisees. They were standing having a conversation with Jesus, the son of God, who had been sent into this world to create a kingdom, which was an unexpected kingdom, you know? And and in that world that he was in, this kingdom that he was creating, the Pharisees were completely missing the big picture of what was happening and focusing on the washing of hands and cups and kettles and all of these different things. They were missing the big picture and focused on the small. Back in uh, 1984, 1985, um, I was in, in middle school at that time, living down in South Florida, and I, um, I loved the game of basketball. Like, that was, like, my sport, and, uh, and loved playing, and, uh, um, and so I was on the middle school boys team for our school, and, uh, and at that time, there was something, like, we look at it now, pretty amazing that was starting to take place in the world of basketball at that time. Because at that time, 1984, 1985, there was a player who was just entering the NBA, a guy named Michael Jordan. So, and Michael Jordan, man, he had come from the University of North Carolina. He had been picked up by the Chicago Bulls. And he was entering the NBA and taking the NBA by 
storm. I mean, the guy who we started to play that time, arguably, in my opinion, is the greatest basketball player who ever lived by anyone in their mid-40s or above. Can I get an amen from you in the room right now? That's right. I mean, Jordan, come on, people watching right now. You got to agree. So here's the thing with Jordan is that he entered the NBA 84-85, just started like, man, changing the game of basketball. And he was doing it to such a great level that as his, as his rookie year, he was invited to play in the NBA All-Star game as a starter, as a rookie, which was kind of unheard of. And he was also invited to compete in the NBA dunk competition, which the world was so excited to see because this guy was unbelievable watching him play and watching the way that he could jump. And, uh, and so does anybody else remember watching that contest? Man, I remember in middle school, like I got my parents' VHS machine out. I put it on a VHS tape. My friends would watch it, you know, rewind. And, you know, like it was, it was amazing. And I wanted to get you a little bit of a feel of what that was like. So let's, for just a moment, watch Michael Jordan in the 1985 NBA dunk competition. Take a look at this. I mean, come on. From the free throw line, the classic Jordan tongue out. How about that 80s crowd too that all stood up with the 10s? Was that amazing or what? So here's the thing. We watched that competition. We watched the way that Jordan was playing the game. Michael Jordan at that time was rewriting basketball. And people watch that contest. I think we have a picture of him. Like, look at the height that he's getting in that competition as he's about to dunk. You know, and, but here's the thing. Do you know what some people said about Michael Jordan competing in, in this dunk contest right here? Some people, do you know what they said? What's up with his shoes? <laughs> you see, if you look at the shoes that he's wearing right now, I think we have another picture of them up close. This is the original Air Jordan. Back Michael Jordan's rookie year, he was also picked up by Nike. Nike had no idea what they were signing on to with Michael Jordan. And this was the original Air Jordan. It was this one and another one in a different colorway. These two colorways were the original shoes that came out. But the interesting thing to find, I mean, we, now these are known as the Air Jordan 1s because they have had so many years of Air Jordans since that time. And this one in particular is called the Air Jordan 1 Band. And the reason why is because this particular shoe, from the get-go, as it hit the ground, was banned from the NBA. Back at that time, there was a rule in the NBA that continued until 2008 called the 51% rule. And the 51% rule said that any shoe worn by a player in a game, in a sanctioned game for the NBA, the shoe had to be the same color as your team's colors, and it had to match everyone else on the court's shoe by 51%. Now, because of that, every team back at that time went with their main color on their shoes as white. Therefore, because these shoes were all black and red, they were immediately banned from the NBA. They were banned because, Michael Jordan's shoes were banned because they weren't white enough. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, people. And so he wasn't allowed to wear these in games in the NBA, but the NBA dunk competition, well, that wasn't a sanctioned game by the NBA. Therefore, as he came out on the court, he came out wearing these shoes. 
And as he wore those shoes, and you go back and you watch, I wish that we could just take the rest of the time, watch the rest of the dunk contest right now. It is absolutely amazing. And you know as you're watching this guy, he is rewriting the game of basketball, which is exactly what he did. He didn't just rewrite the game of basketball. These shoes became, in my opinion, the greatest basketball shoe that was ever created that can, you can continue to pick up today in all kinds of colorways at retro places that sell Nike gear. I mean, they continue to fly off of the, like, off of the shelf. And on top of that, Jordan didn't just change the NBA. He can change sports altogether. If you look at it today, University of Michigan football team has Air Jordan on their uniform for a football team. The guy changed things to such a great level. People are looking at him going, yeah, but what about his shoes? You see, they were focused on the small and insignificant and missing the idea of what this guy was up to. That's exactly what we see happening with the Pharisees. As they're looking at Jesus, everything in this unexpected kingdom he's coming to create, and they're going, yeah, but what about your disciples and their hands? You see, they're focused so much on the small and missing the big picture of what's really taking place, of what Jesus was coming to create in this world, of a world of, of peace and joy and grace and forgiveness and mercy and justice for those who cannot fight for themselves. And they were missing it because they were focused on this. You see, and we can, here's the thing, we can give the Pharisees like a hard time about all that. We can give the people from the NBA a hard time about focusing on the shoes. But the reality is that every single one of us has the propensity to be able to do the exact same thing when it comes to the church today. That we can be people as Christ followers for so many of us who can end up focusing so much on small, insignificant potential traditions that we step into that we miss the big picture of what God's up to because of being focused on tradition. Now here's the thing. Tradition, in my opinion, is a really good thing. Like, when you look at the traditions in the church, when I think back to, through, through my life as a believer, there are so many ways that, uh, that when I think about traditions, they have affected my walk with Jesus. Traditions are a good thing. I mean, for crying out loud, we have a service happening here at Blackhawk called traditions. We are not anti-tradition. Welcome all traditions people. We are not anti-tradition. Tradition's a good thing. Uh, like think about some of the traditions that we follow in the church. Like, do you ever think about when you, when you close your eyes to pray? You realize there's nothing in scripture that says you have to close your eyes, bow your head to pray. I mean, there's suggestions of it, but it's not a command that says that you have to do that. It's a tradition that comes from the idea of, of, of blocking everything else out so that I can just focus my, my thoughts on God and who he is. That's a good thing. Some of you come from a tradition where you would kneel as you prayed. That's a tradition that came from the idea of being, being humble and reverent and, and uh, surrendering before God. Some of you, uh, you know, I mean, you, you're, you're people who get up early in the morning to spend time with God. And, and you get out your Bible and your journal and, uh, and, and you love doing that. I'm a person who loves doing that early in the morning. It's a good tradition because it focuses me in the direction of, of, of like having a lens to where I see my day through the lens of who God is. I'm giving him like my first moments of, of the day. But do you realize like that wasn't even like people didn't have their own Bibles, Back in the New Testament, most of them were illiterate. They weren't sitting there with a journal writing about their day. It's a tradition, and it's a good tradition. 
Some of you grew up in churches where you would, uh, where you would dress up to go to church. How many of you grew up in a tradition dressed up to go to church? Yeah, I, I was one of those people. I love it when people actually, when they dress up here at Blackhawk, you know, because we all dress down. I love it when people dress up. You're kind of like the cutting edge, edgy people now, you know, I mean, in the way that you do that. And, and, and in the church that I grew up at, you would wear your best to church, because it was a way of showing like, God, I am giving you my best. This is a figurative image of the way I'm trying to live my life. I'm giving my best to you right now. Now at a lot of churches, including Blackhawk, we, we dress down for church. That's a tradition. You know, people wear, you know, long sleeve t-shirts and pants with holes in their knees. You know, people always ask me, Matt, why knee holes? And I just simply tell people because I'm on my knees praying for you all the time. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> we, uh, we have all of these traditions that we step into so easily. And traditions, they are good things. They are supposed to move us towards God. But there can be a really easy switch that we start to make where all of a sudden they can move to a dangerous place. Where all of a sudden I begin to start using traditions as a measuring stick of, of, of where I am at in my relationship with God. Where, where all of these things become the thing that I look at in order to say where I'm at in my relationship with God right now. And it even becomes more dangerous when all of a sudden I use it as a measuring stick to measure you and where you're at in your relationship with God. Back when I was in elementary school, I went to a Christian school and uh, in the second grade, I, I had a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Winky. She was awesome. And every day she would start off the day with prayer in class. And I remember there was one day that I, I was, uh, we were praying and, uh, and I noticed that there were some people, like some kids in the class who had their eyes open and they were messing around during prayer. And so after prayer, being the good Christian that I was, I felt it was my duty to go and tell Mrs. Winky about these people in the class who were messing around, had their eyes open, messing around. So I go to Miss Winky, uh, Miss Winky, yeah, there's, I just, I feel like I just need to tell you this before the Lord. Um, I, there, there, there was just these people, I, like they, they had their eyes open during prayer and, and they were messing around. And I just thought that you should know about this. And she just sat in her chair with this nice little Mrs. Winky smile. And she looked at me and said, hmm, how did you know that they had their eyes open? <laughs> and I start, she said, Matt, why don't you go sit down right now? <laughs> Here's, <laughs> tradition, it's a good thing. Measuring stick to measure where other people, all of a sudden it gets dangerous. Because it puts me in a place of thinking I might be way better in my relationship with God than I actually am. And you, well, you're the one who really does need prayer. It can get to a dark place. This is what Jesus is trying to move towards with his disciples, with his followers, with, his, with the Pharisees who were there. And, and, and so we see this in this passage. Jesus then calls his disciples back to him. Go to verse 14 in the passage. Again, Jesus calls the crowd to him. And he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. 
After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? They asked. He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person's enters a person from outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and out of the body in saying this Jesus declared all food clean like Jesus is he's he's moving towards something here like that like I think it's so important for all of us to understand that it's not about the external things that we do it's about what's going on internally in our hearts it's not about just hand washing or the way that we live our lives or if I'm closing my eyes when I pray or raising my hands when I worship or do like any of these things. It's about something that's going on in, inside of me that defiles me because isn't it true that like our hearts, our hearts are where our true motivations and intentions in life really lie. And the Pharisees, they would have understood this. I mean, this was written about in Hebrew scriptures that they had in Proverbs chapter four. It says this, above all else, guard your heart because it is the, the, the wellspring of, of life. Everything you do flows from it. And so Jesus goes on now to give them a picture of the dangers that can take place in our heart. Look at this real quick. Let's go back to the passage. He went on, verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Man, that's a powerful list. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the dirtiest part of your body? Maybe you've never really thought about that all that much. What do you think is the dirtiest part? Like, is it your feet? Like, if people around you, someone around you right now, like, takes off their shoes and socks and starts touching you, that's kind of gross right now. <laughs> or, 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 like, the human mouth, I've heard, has all kinds of bacteria and messed up stuff going on in your mouth. Or... I don't know, like, how about um, your armpit? Because at the end of the day, like that can stink, you know? Or uh, we could, other unmentionables, we could go towards those. <laughs> you see, according to Jesus, what he's saying is the dirtiest part of your body is your, your heart. Because there is darkness that comes from our heart. We know the intentions and the motivations behind the decisions that we make, and we see things that no one else sees. Like, when I think about my life, I know the darkness in my heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Like, when I think about the darkness that comes from my life, I know the motivations and intentions behind the different decisions that I make that you might not know about that actually come from a dark place. I know the anger and like the deceit and the defensiveness that comes from my heart. I know, I, know the, I know the pride and arrogance that so easily comes out of my heart of what I think about myself in comparison to other people. I know the, the, the lust that comes from my heart and the places my mind can go so easily. See, like I, I know the darkness that comes from inside of me. Back when, um, when, I was, when I was young, 
I, I came to the place of accepting Jesus as my savior. And, and I remember using this line with people. Um, I, t- t- like recently, I gave my heart to Jesus. Like does anybody else remember saying that at all? You know, I, like I gave my heart to Jesus. Like we sing songs like that here in our worship services. Here's my heart, Lord. You know, like we move towards that idea. We never think about the idea that my heart, it's kind of gross. It's like, we picture it like it's this beautiful gift when in reality it's like, ugh. My heart is, is nasty. But the incredible thing is we serve a God who, who wants our heart. In the book of Ezekiel, it actually points towards this. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There is an internal transformation that is taking place in that passage. You see, it's not just about external tradition. It's about internal transformation that's supposed to take place. So here's my question for you. How's your heart? What's your heart looking like here towards the end of 2019? Because we can very easily, when we think about here's my heart, how are you doing in your relationship with Jesus? We can go towards things like, well, I I go to church. I'm in a life group. I serve. You know, I... um, you know, I, I get together with other Christians. You know, we, I, I, I pray, I close my eyes. When I worship, I raise my hands. You know, all these different things. But it can be really easy to do all of those things and have nothing going on in your relationship with Jesus. Like, how's your heart? In other words, like, in this year, are you a person who is beginning to look more like Jesus? When you look back over a season, are you a person? Are you more loving? Do you understand forgiveness to a greater level? Are you more kind and gracious and merciful with people? Are are you growing in your self-control? Where are you at in all of these different areas? Are you a person who cares more about justice for those who can't fight for themselves? Because it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian 10 days or 40 years. This process is never done with us. God desires for us to be people who (laughs) we look more like Jesus. One of the things that I I love around here at Blackhawk is uh, um, our baptism services that we do. We do baptism services on a regular basis. And um, every time that I see those, that easily could just be an external sign, you know, of something that somebody steps into. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I was baptized, but... The thing I love is that we have the chance to be able to hear the stories of people who are being baptized. Baptism is an external sign of an internal transformation that's taken place in people. And we get the chance with every person to hear the story of what transformation has and continues to take place in these people's lives. Take a look at this for a minute. Hi, I'm Nikki, this is my story. Hi, my name's Elijah, this is my story. Hi, I'm Eric, and this is my story. My name is Carl, and this is my story. 
Growing up in a Christian household, I came to accept Christ as my Savior from a pretty early age, so it's hard to identify one story as there was no big life-changing moment for me. However, there were a series of smaller things that uh, were steps in my journey with Christ. I really struggled with depression and going through those ups and downs. Um, I, all through high school, I tried to fill the void I felt with when it wasn't drugs and alcohol, it was long-term relationships and just seeking validation from others. After college, I had this strong desire to make something of my life. My parents were successful in the world's eyes. My older siblings were successful. I first decided I wanted to become baptized a couple years ago when I was old enough to know that my faith was my own. However, I was held back by my testimony. I was scared that my testimony wasn't good enough, um, and it took a while, but eventually I came to a place where I realized that there's no correct testimony. I was at such a low point, I just remembered, um, is, is life even worth living? That was a really scary time. At that lowest point, I kind of started calling out to, calling out to God. I mean, there was nothing else left. I would just work and work and work, and I would seek to get affirmation from success at work or from my wife or from good things that were happening in my life. And when those things didn't happen, I wasn't fulfilled. The pastor was talking about what it means to have faith in the Lord and like what to do like to show your faith and stuff. One day he was talking about faith and then I wanted to like be a part of it and stuff. So I talked to the pastor later after the chapel service and we prayed together and like I realized how important it was that you needed God. In around 2003, middle of the night in Milwaukee, after kind of two or three weeks in a row of just feeling like the walls were closing in, my wife and I cried out to Jesus together, you know, in the most kind of guttural, real way um, that, you, that, that one could, you know, just, just kind of saying, I don't know you, I want to know you, I'm sorry I don't know you, and I need you in my life, and come take control. Now I'm being baptized because my faith is rooted firmly in Christ, and as long as I stay centered on Him, through times of doubts and questions, I know that my life has purpose and it has hope. I want to be baptized because it's showing the next step in your journey and with Christ and because it also like shows that you want to change your life to be more like Christ. I cannot wait as this journey progresses, as I say, you know what, I'm all in to following Jesus. That is something we can clap for, all sites, all venues, yeah, it's amazing. Here's the thing. Every person that you saw who was baptized there, that's an external sign of an internal transformation that is taking place, that has taken place in their lives. If any of them were to die today, instantaneously, they would go to be with Jesus in heaven. 
And that internal transformation of looking and becoming more like Jesus is a lifelong journey that continues for all of us. And so, how's your heart? That'd be a great conversation to have this week with close friends, with roommates, family members, your life group, to be able to look at when I, when I am measuring where I'm at with Jesus, is it because I am looking more like Jesus or because I am just more churchy? Because the desire would be that for every one of us, we begin over time to look more like Jesus, becoming more like him and reflecting that to the world that we live in. It's not about external tradition. It's about internal transformation. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the movement that you have made towards us, for the way you have opened a door for us to be in right relationship with you through Jesus and this unexpected kingdom that he came to establish. God, thank you that you are one who continues to work on us, transforming our hearts more into the image of Christ. I pray, Father, for all of us that as we do some kind of internal work um, over these next days that you would help us to be able to see where we are at and you would continue to be the one to transform us more into the image of Jesus that ultimately we would look more like him, reflecting that to the world that we live in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.